Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books' brand values. Today we'll be continuing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Chapter 11. The Sargasso Sea. That day, the Nautilus crossed a singular part of the Atlantic Ocean. No one can be ignorant of the existence of a current of warm water known by the name of the Gulf Stream. After leaving the Gulf of Florida, we went in the direction of Spitsbergen. But before entering the Gulf of Mexico, about 45 degrees of north latitude, This current divides into two arms, the principal one going towards the coast of Ireland and Norway, whilst the second bends to the south about the height of the Azores, then touching the African shore and describing a lengthened oval returns to the Antilles. The second arm, it is rather a collar than an arm, surrounds with its circles of warm water that portion of the cold, quiet, immovable ocean called the Sargasso Sea a perfect lake in the open Atlantic. It takes no less than three years for the great current to pass round it. Such was the region the Nautilus was now visiting. A perfect meadow, a closed carpet of seaweed, fucus, and tropical berries, so thick and so compact that the stem of a vessel could hardly tear its way through it, and Captain Nemo, not wishing to entangle his screw in this herbaceous mass, kept some yards beneath the surface of the waves, The name Sargasso comes from the Spanish word Sargazo, which signifies kelp. This kelp or berry plant is the principal formation of this immense bank, and this is the reason why these plants unite in the peaceful basin of the Atlantic. The only explanation which can be given, he says, seems to me to result from the experience known to all the world. Place in a vase some fragments of cork or other floating body, and give to the water in the vase a circular movement. The scattered fragments will unite in a group in the center of the liquid surface, that is to say, in the part least agitated. In the phenomenon we are considering, the Atlantic is the vase, the Gulf Stream the circular current, and the Sargasso Sea the central point at which the floating bodies unite. I share Maury's opinion, and I was able to study the phenomenon in the very midst, where vessels rarely penetrate. Above us floated products of all kinds, heaped up among these brownish plants, trunks of trees torn from the Andes or the Rocky Mountains, and floated by the Amazon or the Mississippi. Numerous wrecks, 
remains of keels or ship's bottoms. Side planks stove in and so weighted with shells and barnacles that they could not again rise to the surface. And time will one day justify Mori's other opinion. That these substances, thus accumulated for ages, will become petrified by the action of the water and will then form inexhaustible coal mines, a precious reserve prepared by far-seeing nature for the moment when men shall have exhausted the mines of continents. In the midst of this inextricable mass of plants and seaweed, I noticed some charming pink halcyons and actenae, with their long tentacles trailing after them, and medusae, green, red, and blue. All the day of the 22nd of February, we passed in the Sargasso Sea, or such fish as are partial to marine plants find abundant nourishment. The next, the ocean, had returned to its accustomed aspect. From this time, for 19 days, from the 23rd of February to the 12th of March, the Nautilus kept in the middle of the Atlantic, carrying us at a constant speed of 100 leagues in 24 hours. Captain Nemo evidently intended accomplishing a submarine program, and I imagined that he intended after doubling Cape Horn to return to the Australian seas of the Pacific. Ned Land had cause for fear. In these large seas, void of islands, we could not attempt to leave the boat, nor had we any means of opposing Captain Nemo's will. Our only course was to submit, but what we could neither gain by force nor cunning, I like to think might be obtained by persuasion. This voyage ended. Would he not consent to restore our liberty? under an oath never to reveal his existence, an oath of honor which we should have religiously kept. But we must consider that delicate question with the captain. But was I free to claim this liberty? Had he not himself said from the beginning, in the firmest manner, that the secret of his life exacted from him our lasting imprisonment on board the Nautilus? And would not my four months' silence appear to him a tacit acceptance of our situation? and would not a return to the subject result in raising suspicions which might be hurtful to our projects, if at some future time a favorable opportunity offered to return to them. During the nineteen days mentioned above, no incident of any kind happened to signalize our voyage. I saw little of the captain. He was at work. In the library, I often found his books left open, especially those on natural history, my work on submarine depths conned over by him was covered with marginal notes, often contradicting my theories and systems. But the captain contented himself with thus purging my work. It was very rare for him to discuss it with me. Sometimes I heard the melancholy tones of his organ, but only at night. In the midst of the deepest obscurity when the Nautilus slept upon the deserted ocean, during this part of our voyage we sailed whole days on the surface of the waves, the sea seemed abandoned. A few sailing vessels on the road to India were making for the Cape of Good Hope. One day, we were followed by the boats of a whaler, who no doubt took us for some enormous whale of great price. But Captain Nemo did not wish the worthy fellows to lose their time and trouble, so ended the chase by plunging under the water. Our navigation continued until the 13th of March. That day, the Nautilus was employed in taking soundings, which greatly interested me, we had then made about 13,000 leagues since our departure from the high seas of the Pacific. The bearings gave us 45 degrees 37 minutes south latitude and 37 degrees 53 minutes west longitude. It was the same water in which Captain Denham of the Herald sounded 7,000 fathoms without finding the bottom. There, too, Lieutenant Parker of the American Frigate Congress could not touch the bottom with 15,140 fathoms. 
Captain Nemo intended seeking the bottom of the ocean by a diagonal sufficiently lengthened by means of lateral planes, placed at an angle of 45 degrees, with the waterline of the Nautilus. Then the screw set to work at its maximum speed, its four blades beating the waves with its describable force. Under this powerful pressure, the hull of the Nautilus quivered like a sonorous cord and sank regularly under the water. At 7,000 fathoms, I saw some blackish tops rising from the midst of the waters. But these summits might belong to high mountains like the Himalayas or Mont Blanc, even higher. And the depth of the abyss remained incalculable. The Nautilus descended still lower, in spite of the great pressure. I felt the steel plates trembled the fastenings of the bolts, its bars bent, its partitions groaned. The windows of the saloon seemed to curve under the pressure of the waters. And this firm structure would doubtless have yielded if, as its captain had said, it had not been capable of resistance like a solid block. We had attained a depth of 16,000 yards, four leagues, and the sides of the Nautilus then bore a pressure of 1,600 atmospheres. That is to say, 3,200 pounds to each square two-fifths of an inch of its surface. What a situation to be in, I exclaimed. To overrun these deep regions where man has never trod. Look, Captain, look at these magnificent rocks, these uninhabited grottoes, these lowest receptacles of the globe, where life is no longer possible. What unknown sights are here? Why should we be unable to preserve a remembrance of them? Would you like to carry away more than the remembrance? said Captain Nemo. What do you mean by those words? I mean to say that nothing is easier than to make a photographic view of this submarine region. I had not time to express my surprise at this new proposition, when at Captain Nemo's call, an objective was brought into the saloon. Through the widely opened panel, the liquid mass was bright with electricity, which was distributed with such uniformity that not a shadow, not a gradation, was to be seen in our manufactured light. The Nautilus remained motionless. The force of its screws subdued by the inclination of its planes, the instrument was propped on the bottom of the oceanic site, and in a few seconds, we had obtained a perfect negative. But the operation being over, Captain Nemo said, Let us go up. We must not abuse our position, nor expose the Nautilus too long to such great pressure. Go up again, I exclaimed. Hold well on. I had not time to understand why the captain cautioned me thus, when I was thrown forward onto the carpet. At a signal from the captain, its screw was shipped, and its blades raised vertically. The Nautilus shot into the air like a balloon, rising with stunning rapidity and cutting the mass of waters with a sonorous agitation. Nothing was visible, and in four minutes it had shot through the four leagues which separated it from the ocean, and after emerging like a flying fish, fell, making the waves rebound to an enormous height. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today, while well, we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Bree Carlisle. And I hope you come back tomorrow for the next bite of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.
Tom.